This is Suicide, Zombies, and Forgiveness, the pod for anyone who's lost someone to suicide, attempted suicide, or who has an ongoing battle with suicide ideation. We talk self-healing, choosing life, and tips to do just that. You and I both know life's a bit more complicated. Elaine's going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's messy. It ain't all fun. It can hurt. And damn it, it's all we've got. We can learn to laugh at ourselves. You can't take it all seriously. Seriously. Elaine wants to poke some fun, open the wounds, and teach that when you mess up, it's time for hashtag failabration. And then move on. Elaine says in every barn full of shit, there's got to be a pony. Life is precious when you choose to hashtag keep breathing and make the best of your today every day. No matter what happens, hashtag choose life. Now here's your host. I'm Elaine. And today, this is not going to be a solo, you just having to listen to me. Today, I have a guest. My guest is Angela Sutcliffe. Just so you know, Angela Sutcliffe is what I call a smart old broad. She's also a woman on fire and one of the best business coaches in the business. Just wanted to get all that out of the way before we go down a slightly darker path. Because as you'll find out in this episode, Angela, like myself, lost someone as a teenager. Angela, thanks so much for uh, joining me here. Hi, Elaine. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This is such an important subject to talk about, and I really appreciate being here. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming on the show, and I think it's critically important that at this particular time, you know, here we are over a year into the pandemic, and there's lots of people that are finding themselves losing more and more hope. So I'm hoping that as we go through today and as we go through the podcast episodes, we're actually giving people that that little bit of hope, that little impetus to keep breathing, to hashtag choose life. So on that note, Angela, I would appreciate you setting the scene and letting us know what your journey was. Thank you, Elaine. And, you know, I have to start by saying that it's been an interesting journey, decades now removed from the actual beginning. And I think it's very important to to emphasize here that it is it is a personal journey for every person going through. And in my case, when I was 17, my father committed suicide. And uh, so to sort of lay out the scene, he went missing one day. He did, and and my dad, you could have set the clock by him coming home at six o'clock at night. That was it. You knew six o'clock at night, he'd walk in the door, sit down at the kitchen table, we'd have dinner together. And he didn't come home. And it was so unusual. And um, he was in a high security job. And so right away, the office, he hadn't turned in his badge. And the office started calling. 
and saying, do you know where he is? And my mother would say, well, no, he hasn't come home yet. Well, the next thing I knew, she and I had sat up on the sofa together all night with the office calling at about half hour, 45 minute intervals to see if he'd turned up. And of course, I've, I was just a teenager. I, I didn't grasp the fullness of what was happening. I didn't know why he hadn't come home. And it wasn't until a police officer rang our doorbell and my mother opened the door and before anything else was said, she said, he killed himself, didn't he? Oh, wow. And I remember I was totally stunned because, of course, at that age, you, you're not exposed to suicide. You don't think anyone is going to kill themselves, let alone your father. And there'd been really, for me as a child, or, or as a teenager, there'd been no nothing that I could even say, well, you know, he was this, he was that, he was the other. It was just one morning my dad walked out and he never came home. Wow. That in itself, before we go any farther, that, that I just want to touch on that because that's a sort of a universal thread that goes through uh, when people are survivors of suicides is that that lack of closure, if you will, that that always, I don't know, waiting, hoping, it just, it leaves, I don't know, a feeling of unfinishedness. I think it did for my mother. Um, it, it was interesting. And in a way, I hadn't realized at a time, in fact, I probably hadn't realized until just this minute, the gift that my father actually left me in that he left a note. And in his note, he basically said to my mother and to me that we had to take care of each other. And so that was that was a bit of a farewell that a lot of people don't get. Now, for me, what happened next was my mother was so paralyzed. And I think she was paralyzed from shock, but I think the deeper paralysis was shame. She was so paralyzed, she couldn't do anything. And the police officer said, you know, somebody has to come to the morgue and identify the body. And so, of course, there was her and there was me. So off I went to the morgue to identify my father. We have to stop there for a second because I really want the audience to understand you were 17 years old yes you obviously had a very deep sense of what was right and you stepped up when your mother couldn't and i think that's really indicative of your your whole attitude to life and i think that's also why you've come through this in a good way you know, albeit decades later, I think you you really understood, or perhaps uh, just by rote, did what was required. And I, I sort of, yes, it, it was whatever caused me to do it. I think for me, it was the first steps of closure. So that I went to the morgue, I identified my father, I came home, the first really big shock 
happened when the police officer opened the car door to let me out and reached onto the back seat and gave me a case, like a bag, with my father's clothes in and a book he'd been reading open to a chapter on suicide and the note. And that was when it first really, really became evident that this had happened. Now, what happened next that I think was my mother never got out of in her whole entire life until she died. She say, stayed stuck in the moment that my dad died. But for me, I then had to go on and make the funeral arrangements. And I had to go to the wake, you know, where you sort of used to be, especially before COVID. Yeah. Um, I had to be at the funeral home for three nights to receive the visitors. And I remember people from, you know, my parents' lives coming in and saying, I guess there's no one here from the family. So I was that invisible to them that they didn't realize I was the daughter. Well, absolutely. And just, just to give the audience a little bit of perspective, um, you, like me, are an immigrant uh, yeah. from the UK. You you come from England and that um, privacy and closed mouth attitude is quite prevalent in Britain. The shame factor, I think, crosses all boundaries, all barriers. It doesn't matter where you're from. For so, so long, suicide was cloaked in shame. It was not something that you talked about. Uh, people used very hushed tones if they used any. And I, I wanted to talk to you specifically because you had a different um, outcome, if you will, in terms of a note. When you lose someone, as I did, who was a friend, there was no note. And further to that, my friend was Jewish, which meant there was no viewing. There was no time for us to actually be able to digest what had happened. We simply, she was there and then she was not. And I think I saw this play out with my mother because, um, let me see now, she... She lived 40-some years after my father died. Right. And for all those years, she kept making up these fantasy stories about why he might have done it. You know, maybe he had been having an affair. Maybe the woman had put the pressure on him to leave his family, and he couldn't do it, so he took the honorable out. And I thought, and that just doesn't sort of, you know, resonate. But for her entire life, she'd make up these scenarios, these scenarios. And she read a lot of romance stories. And I think that she based a lot of her, her fantasy about what actually happened. Because she hadn't seen his body. She no. never saw him dead. Just as you said, she did not have the closure that I had. I saw his body. I stood by that casket. I had that time to talk to his friends. I had that time to understand. Now, it didn't mean that I didn't have years of therapy to get over this. 
But it did mean that I took a different journey to my mother, which my mother's would have been similar to yours, Elaine, where one minute he was there, the next minute he was gone forever. She never, ever, ever, the next time she participated was when she sat in the church for the funeral. Right. And that was that was her next participation. And there's no doubt about it, it scarred her for life. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it interesting, I, just one point I wanted to, to sort of diverge at. You said she, in romanticizing what had happened, uh, you know, in, in terms of an affair or, or whatever, a, a woman wanting him to, to leave the family, and this was an honorable out. Yes. The difference between our religions, you you as a, a Protestant and me as a Catholic, the hardest thing for me was to tell my parents that my friend, my Jewish friend, had committed what in Catholicism is the ultimate sin. And that cloak of shame, I understand fully how how your mother wore that because it, it made the words like vile in my mouth and it was so hard to even tell my family. And for my mother, it was a social shame. It was a huge social shame because she came from a certain class in England where, you know, these things were just swept under the rug. And in fact, um, again, decades later, I wound up right after my mother died, I wound up taking on her doctor as my family doctor. And sneaky guy, one of the first things he said to me was, by the way, how did your father die? And I thought, oh my God, he's been my mother's doctor for 30 years and she never told him. And I wow. said, well, you know, he, he killed himself. And my doctor said, I thought he had. So clearly my mother had been exhibiting some sort of, yeah. call it symptoms, evidence, behavior, um, that indicated that this form of death had affected her profoundly. But I still think the lack of closure is why she took it to her grave as fresh as fresh as the day it happened. I, I totally agree with you because in in this day and age, people are starting to talk. When people, you know, now there's a, a lot of children you're losing. Um, men over 50 are, are one of the highest uh, suicide rates. And I honestly think that was for a very long time. I think it's just coming out now because people are actually acknowledging that suicide exists. You know, it, go ahead. Andrew. Sorry, I was going to say, you've just triggered something that um, a, a man I, I was friends with said to me one day when we were in a parking lot, we'd been to an event and he looked at me and said, Angela, I have to tell you something. He said, when I married my wife, she had such a wonderful career and she was so bright and we were going to be partners in our relationship. 
And then she got pregnant. She had children and that's great. And he said, I worked harder to support the family. And she kept promising that she would come back to work and help me financially. And he said, Angela, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do. He said, I'm at the end of my rope. The children are now in university. And he said, it is killing me trying to support this family. And so what you said a minute ago about um, men over 50, 55, mm -hmm. you know, we, we put a huge burden on people. And it's not always the man that's the sole support of the family, mm -hmm. whoever is the sole support. And so to not talk about mm -hmm. suicide, I mean, we call it mental illness. We call it an illness. I don't think I could call it an illness. I would say it's an option when you get, to, when you run out of options. And it's not a good option. Do you know when my father died, I sat in that church and that church couldn't have held any more people. The funeral home couldn't have held any more people. And I thought, this is a man who went out of the world thinking he was all alone. And yet hundreds of people turned up to pay tribute to him. And I think that that's where we don't talk about these things. We, we carry the shame ourselves and think that we can't talk about it. And yet, you know, it, we have to talk about it. We have got to talk about it. it it's like all other illnesses, we, we have to talk about them in order to, when you can only dispel the dark with the light of day. If you bring things into the light, it's much easier to deal with and it's much easier to deal with when you have others to help lift you up. And uh, I'm going to, I was hesitant about adding this piece at any time because I only recently learned that my father's sister, although they believe she died of a drug overdose um, prescription, we believe that she actually took her life. And the reason for that was she had an absolutely vicious, brutal husband who abused her. But I'm learning about this in my 60s. I didn't even know that my father had a sister until the day she died. When the, he got information from Scotland and had to fly home to handle this. And, you know, that was when I was a child. So we're talking in the 60s. Now I'm in my 60s. And... Um, my dad and I just talked about this a couple of months ago. Wow. And, wow. and what that says to me, and I think what that should say to the audience is, okay, nobody is honestly farther than arm's length from someone who's lost someone. I think it's, it's so common and it's interesting that you bring up the drugs and the prescription because I know that people who work with addicts will often say that this is a way of killing themselves slowly. This is actually a, a long, long road to suicide. Yeah. But uh, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't know if we can save anyone that's on the path 
I know we can help people on the path. I know if we talk more about it, more options will be open. Um, it's not right and it's not wrong. It just is. I, I totally agree with you there. I, I think, and, and my, my whole point in starting this podcast was to give someone pause for thought because those of us who survive, everyone who's left behind after someone takes their own life, they have to go ahead in their journey and you're never far from that loss. It's, it's presented to you in different ways, but I'm sure you'll agree with me and there are certain places, there are certain smells, there are certain foods, uh, music, things that take you right back to that moment. And again, it's like opening a fresh wound. The pain can be almost as bad as it was in the initial event. It's interesting, and, and it's so true. I mean, the suicide, the person who commits suicide is one thing. Those of us who are left to make sense of it and make sense of it in our lives and to integrate it into our lives as much as we can, um, because, you know, there's no point in saying you'll get over it. You never get over it. You integrate it into the person you are. And, yeah, my dad uh, killed himself at the Lord Elgin Hotel here in Ottawa, so I can never go down Elgin Street past that hotel without remembering that mm -hmm. on the other hand let me tell you a, a really interesting story um when my mom died and and bear in mind when dad died i really didn't know him he'd had a, a top security job so he never talked about his job he never talked about his work i really didn't know a lot about him except as as dad um when my mom died i inherited of course, all the paperwork, everything that left over. And I was going through all her papers. And didn't I find a whole package of papers from courses that my father had taken for his work? And it blew me away because every one of those courses is a course I would have or I have taken myself. Wow. And I thought, considering I knew next to nothing about who my dad was professionally. I cannot believe that I followed his path rather than my mother's path. And I thought, how is that for subliminal and subconscious? And how is that from a great reward, a great, you're okay, kid, from my dad? And I don't think a lot of us get a chance, you know, we think of all the things like the Lord Elgin Hotel and what if and if only and oh my gosh, and could I have saved this or did I cause this? All of those things. But if you keep your eyes open like I did and those papers turned up and I thought, ah, oh my gosh, that is a sign from the heavens. I'm okay. Absolutely. And I can certainly say, because I, I do know you, that you, you most definitely are okay. <laughs> it takes some of us a little longer than others to, to get okay with 
what has happened. And we won't talk about it in this episode, but in another episode, I too had a had a moment like that, a, a blessing, if you will, in what I call my gift from Andrea. And that's why I'm here being able to talk to you today. If you were to speak to someone who's on the edge, who's feeling bereft or lonely or at a loss, what single piece of advice would you offer? Oh, that's a profound question. I know. That's a profound question. I think the most important thing that I learned, and and bear in mind, I went through decades of therapy to get through this. And I think I opened by saying, at this end of my life, I can look back. And one of the gifts of, of the length of time that passes is that that immediate emotional uh, thing gets fainter and fainter. Like if you had were at loggerheads or butted heads or whatever you think, from a distance, you can see it more objectively. And so I can honestly say, hang in, hang on, because once you start to see the story objectively, then you can honor that per- that person's life. You can honor that person's decisions. And you can understand that parts of them will live on forever through who you are and how you go through this world. And I, I would like to think that because of, of my father, it has made me... Um, perhaps a more understanding person because I was, I was pretty awful as a kid, as many teenagers are. I took the awful teenager route and I blamed myself. You know, I blamed dad's death a lot on my behavior and objectively at this end of things, I can say, no, I was actually being a teenager. There were a lot more profound things happening. And so you start to see the little gifts of clarity the little gifts of light and life that come when you can step back. But it's not a journey you can take alone. I would say it's a journey you have to take with someone who can help guide you professionally through it. I think that's really, really good advice. And I want to add a little bit to that in that now um, it's like, Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we can do better. We have to dispel that shame. If you've lost someone, talk about them. Talk about it. Be honest because people will help support you going forward. And don't be like I was when I was younger, thinking I, I was a an island against the world and I would handle this and I would deal with this because quite frankly, I did none of the above. That too, we'll get to later in the podcast. And I think if, if I may, it's surprising how accepted 
people uh, and accepting people are when you talk about this. And that's and because it touches so many people. You tell your story and suddenly you realize you're just part of a bigger story someone else has. Absolutely. Such a good point. And, and I, I'm just going to tweak that a little because I'm not going to say acceptable. It is painful, but people will empathize. Yes. And, and I think that is critical. No longer is it right to be judgmental. No longer can you just assume that this was a bad this was a bad situation or the people involved were included in that because one it's not true and two you weren't there you didn't walk in their shoes and quite frankly if anyone judges you they're not your friend absolutely absolutely that's a really good point and the fact is if you're left behind and you're struggling if you you know are filled with shame and haven't divulged to anyone what has happened there are lots of people out there who want to be of help there's lots and lots of hotlines and you can always reach into the show if you have a story that you want to share i am more than happy to listen and help you get some sort of closure Angela Sutcliffe is my guest today. I want to say thank you so much for being so raw and real with me here. This has been Suicide, Zombies, and Forgiveness, and we will be back in just a week with another story from the archives. In the meantime, make the very best of your today every day. Keep breathing and choose life.